Welcome to Behind the Curtain, LA Opera's podcast series in which we look deeply at the creative process and explore opera's enduring themes and power to move us. As part of LA Opera's On Now digital offerings, we are thrilled to be premiering an audio performance of Billy Budd, beginning Tuesday, April 27th at 5 p.m. Pacific Time on LA Opera's website, www.laopera.org. Billy Budd was composed by Benjamin Britten, with a libretto by English novelist E.M. Forster and Eric Crozier, based on the short novel by Herman Melville. Eliopra's production, from February and March 2014, was conducted by James Conlon with stage direction by Francesca Zambello. In anticipation of the audio presentation, we are delighted to share from the vaults Maestro Conlon's pre-performance discussion of Benjamin Britten and this opera he adores. This is an opera probably the biggest opera that Benjamin Britten wrote. Now, where does the Billy Budd stand in the context of uh, Benjamin Britten's operas and output? He wrote 13 major operas. He did write three church parables, but they really are dramatic works. A lot of you know uh, know his flood. His first work was, believe it or not, Paul Bunyan. It was an operetta that he wrote in 1941 with W.H. Auden. That's about pretty, pretty heavy collaboration there. It's considered a minor work, and I suppose it is, but it's actually quite good. So if you ever have a chance to see it or hear it. But what put Benjamin Britten on the international map forever was his first big success, and that was Peter Grimes. Um, you know that Peter Grimes comes from a story by a man named George Crabbe. It was in a poem called The Burrow. E.M. Uh, e. Foster, who's going to play a role tonight, E.M. Foster, the British novelist, had written an article, and Benjamin Britten read this article. Guess where he was? He was right here in Los Angeles. That was the year he was living, uh, one of the two years he was living in the U.S. He found this article by E.M. Foster. Um, he was so fascinated by George Crabbe's The Burrow that he went off to find The Burrow, and he found it somewhere in a bookstore uh, between Hollywood and Santa Monica. We haven't found the bookstore yet. Probably isn't there anymore. That was 1939. Uh, but Peter Grimes was born right here in Los Angeles. Um, that was 1945. Uh, Britain also, uh, having grown up in the east coast of England, was a man who was attached to the sea. It played an enormous role in his mind, in his psyche, in his music. Uh, he's written three operas where the sea is the major playground for the opera. Peter Grimes is, of course, the first. Billy Budd, this will be the second. And his final opera, which is Death in Venice, also written by a, a one-time resident of Los Angeles, Thomas Mann. Those are the three operas where the sea, and the sea is not just the sea as a natural force, a force of nature, but it is also a metaphor for the changing humors of human existence, the great emotions, the power of those emotions. Wagner did it first in a big way in the 19th century, and Britain did it in a very different way. Now, the next really big opera to come is Billy Budd. Billy Budd is written in 1950. It was premiered on the 1st of December 1951 at Covent Garden. It was a big, big, big success. And in a certain way, it was interesting because Britain wrote a big opera, Peter Grimes. Uh, he wrote two chamber operas, which surprised everybody. And then he surprised them again with coming back with an enormous opera. This is the, the dimensions of Billy Budd are larger than any of his other operas. It is the biggest orchestra he ever employed. It has an enormous cast, 20 characters. Uh, it has an enormous chorus. It is probably, in all respects, dimensions like the sea upon which this boat floats and which the story is told. 
1960, he revised it, and it was um, first tried out. BBC produced it uh, in a concert, and it was judged to be seaworthy. So in 1964, it had its premiere in Covent Garden as the new version. That's what we are doing, of course. It's the second version. Now, Billy Budd, uh, I remember as a child, I was already aware of it in the late 50s or early 60s. So I thought Billy Budd was really around a long time. I thought it was a classic. Well, it turns out, no. Uh, he was born in 1819. He died in 1891. But Billy Budd was left unfinished and was not published until 1924. When Britain wrote this opera, it was only 25 years after the publication. And just uh, so much more time separates us from this opera than separated the discovery of Billy Budd. So that Britain is actually writing about something that, well, you can't say it's contemporary because it was written back around, who knows, the 1880s. But it was new. People often say, well, Benjamin Britten's a very conservative composer. Uh, mostly the uh, followers and the zealots of 12-tone music considered him backwards because he wrote major chords and minor chords. I contest that. I think it was anything but conservative. Um, he pushed at the edges of musical composition and certainly theater all of his life. Billy Budd is an enormous opera that did something that hadn't been done before, an all-male cast. There are no women. And that was considered very, very strange at the time. He was to go on in the 60s to write the three church parables, the prodigal son, a burning fiery furnace, and Curlew River, also all male. So that he established a sound with this opera um, that uh, sort of, again, pushed the parameters of what is an opera and what it can be. It was no less shocking than when Puccini wrote Suor Angelica around the time of the First World War, which was considered very, very, very strange because it had only women in it. So Britain in my mind, always has something to say about social issues. What are, the, what are his big themes? And they come back over and over again. One of the first ones is the outrage innocence. Innocence uh, deceived, innocence betrayed, innocence destroyed, uh, innocence outraged. He comes back to this theme over and over again in his life. He was a pacifist. He was a conscientious objector. He took a lot of gaff for that. Uh, he was on one of those lists um, that was around in the McCarthy era, that he was, an, he was undesirable uh, to have around. He was criticized in Britain for not having taken part in the war efforts. It, probably he was on the wrong side of history in that particular time, but he was a man of conviction and he was a pacifist all his life. You'll see those themes come up regularly um, in his operas and in his church works as well. He was appalled by the commonplace of violence. Uh, I don't know what he would feel if he lived in our world today, probably worse, uh, but he was. this is often a uh, theme in his operas. If you also look at something else that's interesting, this is a man who, who chose his subjects from literary sources. You know, um, back in the 19th century, a play or something would, would produce an opera. And yes, uh, Romeo and Juliet, which is a play, of course, gets produced. But it's very interesting to look at where these operas came from. Peter Grimes comes from a poem by George Crabb. Uh, the Rape of Lucretia was a play, French play. Uh, Albert Herring, believe it or not, was a French short story. Billy Budd, Melville, The Turn of the Screw, Henry James, a Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare, Owen Wingrave, Henry James, a Death in Venice, Thomas Mann. It's not very easy to turn novels into operas. What's amazing about this work is that the Melville short story 
is short on a lot of details. There's a, there's a lot of reflection. There's, there are a lot of left and right turns. There is not a lot to pin in terms of way of action. The action is actually fairly simple and could be described in several sentences. Benjamin Britten and his librettist had to create a lot of material to fill this opera out. Now, he just happened to have a very, very great writer, novelist, E.M. Foster, as his principal librettist, and he also collaborated with Eric Croisier, who had been, of course, his librettist in the past. E.M. Foster is, of course, a major force, and he forced Britain in many respects. Britain pushed back, but the tension and the chemistry of those two great minds together has produced a great work. The basic story, if you're not familiar with it, is it's a tale of good and evil. Um, there is somebody very, very, very good, abnormally good, and his name is Billy Budd, and he is a beautiful young man. He is innocent, he is generous, he is kind, he is somebody who stands out for all those qualities. There is a very evil man. His, he is the master at arms on the, this ship of war. His name is John Claggart. He's handsome, he's charming, and he is absolutely wicked. He is as bad as Iago, and he will show you that. He will even tell you that. And he has a soliloquy uh, toward the end of the first act, which is very similar to Iago's credo in the second act of Otello. And uh, these men are pitted against each other. Then the central figure is actually the captain of the ship. His name is Captain Veer. Uh, we will see him at the beginning of the opera and the end of the opera because Britain loved frames. Uh, he loved to begin and end his work with a sense of unity. Captain Veer is an old man, and he recounts the story of Billy Budd decades after it had taken place. It is clear Billy Budd is going to be executed. He's going to be hung at the end of the opera, and that is the tragedy. Captain Veer has suffered from this all of the rest of his life. So we'll see him at the beginning, and then it will be a flashback. We will see the entire story, and when we get to the end of the story, we will see Captain Veer again, as we left him as an old man, continuing to remember him and philosophizing about what was the meaning of this experience, Billy Budd, who he was, and the captain. Captain Veer is an intellectual, he is a thoughtful man, he is an aristocrat, he is, a, he is basically a very good man, but he is uh, caught in the vice of a moral decision. Uh, Billy Budd, because he has one character, well, it's not even a character defect, he has one defect, he stammers. And when he becomes upset and stammers, uh, he has no other way to express himself except physically. And in so doing, he punches John Claggart and kills him. Therefore, he has to be condemned. That's, that's the law. And Captain Veer is a man of, of duty. He's a man of, in the service of the King of England. He feels he must respect that. At the same time, he knows that Billy Budd was innocent. He knows that John Claggart was evil. And yet, he, in this moral, has to choose between justice and compassion. Just as there is a dichotomy in the entire uh, Judeo-Christian tradition of is God a God of justice and rigorous or is it a God of compassion and forgiveness? And you can justify either view and both views all at once uh, through biblical sources and scriptures. This is the philosophic problem for Captain Veer. I know he's innocent. Can I, should I give him clemency? And does he? The answer is he does not. By not doing this, he becomes another example of a target of Britain's critical eye, which he shows over and over again in the course of, uh, course of his years. It is the authority figure 
who abdicates his moral responsibilities and his moral obligations as an authority. It could be the kings, it could be the kaisers, it could be a father, it could be a father figure, it could be anybody. But in this case, Captain Veer, in his way, fails morally because he had an opportunity to exhibit compassion and he chose not to. He is left in a mist. The mist is a symbol in this opera, not being able to see. Um, the confusion in Captain Veer's mind is expressed in the opening bar of the opera. We establish two different keys, B flat major and B minor, simultaneously. You're going to hear it in a minute. It sounds like a gray day. It sounds misty. It seems like something you cannot see through. And that is what is Captain Veer's uh, essential state uh, of being. but like a rainy day. This is a warship, 1797, British warship fighting the French. Now this, you hear the brass instruments, they're going to enunciate very shortly the second theme, and that is the theme of evil, and that is John Claggart. He's going to say, I'm an old man who has experienced much. I've been a man of action and have fought for my king and country at sea. I have also read books and studied and pondered and tried to fathom eternal truth. Much good has been shown me and much evil, and the good has never been perfect. There is always some flaw in it, some defect, some imperfection in the divine image. Listen to the orchestra behind it. You will hear trumpets trilling, um, woodblock shaking itself, and woodwinds making a stammering type of sounds. This is the stammer of Billy Budd. Some imperfection in the divine image. Some fault in the angelic song. This is Billy trying to talk. So you see that, now follow that, you're gonna hear it several times when Billy, and most dramatically, of course, right before he strikes John Claggart. Oh, what have I done? Now this becomes a motive, later it will become a motive of mutiny, but it all takes its root from this. Oh, what have I done? Uh, Captain Veer knows that he is morally culpable for what he has done. At the end of the prologue, he's about to recount the story, you hear there's a very soft chord in the brass. The orchestration of this opera is very uh, tilted toward the brass instruments, the percussion instruments, and the woodwind instruments, which gives it a particularly uh, masculine character, a naval character, uh, almost a bellicose uh, character at times, if you will. This chord, B-flat major is going to become the chord of redemption at the end of the opera, and it is going to insert itself at various points, and we're supposed to get the metaphysical point of it when it comes in, even though we will not understand it until the end of the opera. Here it is at the in beginning. In the French wars, in the difficult and softly dangerous the days after the mutiny at the north, in the days when I hit with It, a long time ago, 1797, in the days that I, Edwin Fairfax Veer, commanded the Indomitable. The Indomitable is the name of the warship. And now we go right into it and we see the warship. You 
You can hear all these, these kind of fanfares. That's going to be life on the warship. That is going to be associated with the officers making sure that the men work. It is a cruel world. It is the world of Oliver Twist, only it's on the water. Uh, these are impressed. Uh, many of these men did not want to go into the Navy. They were picked up on ships. The first sounding of this little is in B-flat and B, B minor. B-flat major, B minor at the same time. And now we're going to hear the men for the first time doing their work on the ship. Oh, heave. This is forced labor. They sing to keep themselves going, but it's, it's, not, it's not like whistle while you work. Feel the heaviness of it. And that is based on the same motive as, oh, what have I done? The question Veer poses to himself in the epilogue. Now another motive. These are the officers who shout orders. It sounds almost like a high, shrill whistle uh, in the violins and the flutes. That trumpet is sounding a B-flat. You don't, you don't need to know that, but that's the B-flat. That's going to be, of course, going through the entire opera. Now, in the midst of all that, um, they sight a ship. They board the ship. It's a, it's a commercial, and they need, they need a few young men to add, and so they take three of them with them. The first two are interrogated, uh, and they're not particularly happy or willing to come, but they have to. And the third man is a man of extraordinary good, good humor, and he bounces in there, and it's Billy Budd. And you're now hearing Billy Budd's motive against the Oheef. Happy Billy Budd. to the horns. Boom, 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 boom. It's, it's a very open arpeggio. Some little boys, the mainshipmen. Here we have our hero. There he is. Remember Siegfried? There he is. There is a similarity. There is no question in these two characters. Siegfried, uh, an ignorant but, but born into nature hero, behaves badly, but somehow he still is a hero. And that openness, that uh, candor, is a characteristic of Billy Budd. Britain adored Wagner. He loved Wagner. He heard Goethe Demmerung in Vienna when he was not yet 20 years old. And he wrote back home. He said, he said, I've never heard an orchestra like this. There is one moment that I will point out to you that, for me, is absolutely a parallel to the end of the second act of Goethe Demmerung. Okay, so Billy Budd is on board. This is John Claggart cracking his whip. And he is interrogating each of the, the three men. Your name, your age. I object. I object. Now he asks Billy Budd, uh, what's your name? How old are you? Don't know. Can you read? No, I can sing. He says, never mind the singing. And then he says, you don't know where you were born? How is that? And he wants to say that he is a foundling. And for the first time, he stammers. And we hear him stammer. Listen to the orchestra. He stammers. He stammers. 
You hear the stammering motive that you already heard in the prologue. He gets it out. I'm a foundling. Okay, this is important because he does not have a father. And his need for a father figure is going to play a role, for better or for worse, in this opera because he will, of course, look up to Captain Veer as a father figure. He will, in his way, look up to John Claggart as a father figure. And through that, John Claggart is able to deceive him. Now, listen carefully to the strings. Here's Billy Budd, um, King of the Birds. But here he is, joyous. If you listen to the strings, that's his motive. So fast you can barely discern it. It's the waves, but it's made out of Billy Budd's motive. And this is one of the fantastic things about studying Benjamin Britten, that every little detail, somehow or other, is tied to another detail. And you can only get this through repeated hearings. So there he is. But you see his music is very open. In contrast to this, this is John Claggart. Of course, he's the bass baritone. He has to be, right? Iago was, Scarpia is. And you heard it already in the first few bars of the prologue. I heard your honor. Yes, I heard. You heard that already right at the beginning of the opera. So we get that B-flat, B minor dissonance, which is moral confusion. And out of that came, came John Claggart's motive. Listen again. You'll hear it in the brass instruments. Here we go. And that is John Claggart. The fr that's his. Okay, here's another one. This is a lament. One of the young novices is flogged, which is, a, uh, which is a common punishment. You hear that? Extraordinary choice of Britain. Out of nowhere comes the saxophone. Never been in one of his operas before. And it, you hear that melancholy, that lament that it expresses. Now, on the other hand, everybody likes Captain Veer, or at least they pretend to. But Billy Budd really likes Captain Veer. You're gonna hear all praise Starry Veer. His, that's his nickname. This opera is replete with fantastic writing for chorus. When we meet Captain Veer, the young Captain Veer now, he's in, his, uh, he's in the quietude of his little cabin. He's reflecting, he's reading, you hear the quiet, totally different from the activities you have heard on board. The whips, the oheave. He's reading Plutarch. He is re he's a man who reads, he's a man who thinks. And you see, you see him here in this closed-in cabin, and he will say, in this little cabin, I have seen the universe, I have seen good, I have seen evil. He's a reflective man. Now he'll invite the officers in for a drink. The master at arms and the first officer. And he offers them a drink, and he says, the king. And he raised, they raised, gentlemen, gentlemen, the king, the king, the king, the king, 
Listen to the harp. Listen to the harp. Another toast. The French. Down with them. Down with them. Now the talk gets serious. Something to be afraid of. Mutiny. There have been two recent mutinies, one on the Noor and one on the rights of men. This is on everybody's mind. This is, remember, very shortly, not 10 years yet, after the French Revolution, they're worried about it. So they're going to talk mutiny, and mutiny is going to have two different motives. Listen to that rising arpeggio in the cello. Up, like a mutiny, from the bottom up. Quiet at first. He says, oh, but the Nord, a floating republic. That is, oh, what have I done? That's the same motive that Captain Veer enunciated at the beginning. Here it is again. Oh, what have I done? So he turned this into the mutiny thing. But we have, oh, heave, oh, heave. And now a second playing out of that motive. God preserve us from the north. Now listen to the cello and this rising figure. Very quiet. There it is again. So we have two two motives, and the other one is which you see is uh, is almost a description of the mutiny that starts quietly from below and rises like a wave. Okay, now we have a marvelous picture of the sea. The men sing in the night to cheer themselves up. takes over. We get this extraordinary picture of the open sea. Remember this opera is claustrophobic in one sense. Everybody's stuck on that, that boat. At the same time, there's infinity all around. There's the sea, there's the sky, there's the universe. And you get a sense of the universe dismissing. And now, here it is at its climactic moment. As it builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up. Onto this. This is a majestic moment. And then a lighter moment. The men sing for fun. A shanty. And it gets varied. And John Claggart's spy tries to steal from Billy. Billy gets mad. And there he goes again. Tries to, he tries to speak, he can't. And he punches him. They have a fight. So 
that's it. Very well. And finally, Claggart comes in and breaks it up. Hear the solemn chorus. Billy, of course, takes quick. He takes care of the spy. No problem. He's very strong. And John Claggart looks at him and says, "Handsomely done, my boy. Handsomely done." And here's where he sets his trap. Uh, John Claggart, of course, in his wickedness is, of course, attracted to Billy Budd and repulsed by him at the same time. He is physically attracted, but he hates goodness. And he's going to explain all of that to us. I'm not going to play it for you because there won't be enough time. He's going to explain all of that to us in his credo. It's like Iago. He will tell us that he cannot stand to be in the presence of goodness because if he's in the presence of goodness, he, he sees his own badness. This is the end of his soliloquy. I, John Claggart, Master at Arms. You hear that chord in the background? Two notes suggesting the key of F minor, wickedness. This is another Claggart motive. And I will destroy you, he swears to do. F minor becomes F major. There's a little hammock goes around like that. You can feel it floating on the boat. It's in F major, and it's made out of the same arpeggios as the uh, Billy Bud Siegfried. Uh, okay, and at the end, um, his old friend, the oldest man on board, Dansker. Dansker is an old English term for somebody who's Danish. Dansker is a seaman, and he befriends Billy, and he tells Billy, watch out for, for uh, Claggart. They call him Jemmy Legs. Watch out for Jimmy Legs, he's on to you. And Billy is so naive, of course, he doesn't understand this, nor does he believe this. And the, the first act comes to a climax constructed like a Wagner act. Big climax. And this, to me, sounds like Goethe Demerung at the end of the act. Hagen, if you remember Hagen, Wicked Hagen. The last thing we will hear on the brass is Claggart's theme. Act one. I'm only going to play you the end of the entire opera because I have to and my time is running out. But the second act, there's a battle, big, big battle. And uh, they shot, shoot off the cannon once. And it goes right into the mist and the wind turns against them. And the mist takes over and they never, they never confront the French. And the, the meaning of the mist, of course, is central. Now, here is Captain Veer at the end of the opera having a vision. Billy Budd forgave him. Billy Budd showed him compassion. And now, as he dies, Veer, he is on the way. He sees the great white flag. He sees eternity. This extraordinary climax. This big B-flat major chord, with that luminous shining of redemption and eternity. But you also hear the drum in the background which is reminiscent of the drum that accompanied Billy Budd when he was hung. Listen to this again. Here it is, the climax coming. If any of you are familiar with the Mahler Sixth Symphony, it's the same thing. A big brass chord and this drum thumping destiny over and over and over again. I'm an old man now. A 
and my mind could go back to the summer of 1797, long ago, years ago, and you see, the B-flat chord has gone away, the drum is only a rumble, you can barely hear it. And Captain Veer simply repeats it again. I, Captain Veer, commanded the indomitable, and that's the end of the opera. Have a great time. I'll see you out. You've been listening to LA Opera's Behind the Curtain. Thank you, and see you at the opera. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.